I'm going to begin our service this morning with a reading from Scripture, Amos 5 and uh, from Ecclesiastes 5. <clears throat> Amos 5, 21 says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing, that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would engineer our hearts this morning by your spirit to listen to your word, to what you have to say, to what you've already said. We pray that um, you would use Scott this morning as he preaches. And uh, he would be out of the way and your word would be clear. And we pray that our worship is true and not foolish and it's simple and not business and that it's heart, not just uh, a burnt offering that has no justice behind it and no truth behind it and that our lives are real worship and that this isn't just a compartment in the next few minutes of our lives. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, dear Lord, uh, through songs we have made some very, very lofty um, statements this morning. Through song, we have confessed that we are prone to wonder even though we've tasted of your love and received it. Lord, through song, we have asked that you bind our hearts because we know we have a tendency to wonder. Lord, through song, we have confessed our sins and we have tried to stir one another up to the reminder that we should draw near to you carefully. Lord, I pray that those are never empty words. I pray that in our time this morning, you would show us the role of song and worship. That we would be quickened to be more wholehearted in our worship. God, to be in your presence, to know you're here, to know that you listen, is amazing. All of our souls should be stirred right now. And I pray that it would be so. Lord, I want to pray this morning for those who are meeting just across the county and worshiping together. I pray that um, as they call in your name, that they're mindful of your promises to, to come and to bless and to be present. Lord, I pray specifically uh, for Doug Stevens as he's leading worship with his team there at First Baptist. I pray that they're worshiping in spirit and in truth, putting your glory on display and uh, doing so wholeheartedly. Lord, please bless our time this morning. Please show us uh, the beauties of your glory. Please show us the magnificence of song and how you have ordained it to be so. Uh, we humbly approach you this morning in the name of Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can open up to 1 Chronicles 16. We're going to be spending a lot of time in Chronicles in the next few weeks, so it's after First and Second Kings. It's not a real familiar book. Hopefully it will be. Over the past few months, uh, we've learned a lot about who we are and what we do. We have, um, we've learned about what we do when we gather here in these times of corporate worship, and we've learned about what, what these times do to equip us for a work of ministry that takes place outside of this. The bar has been raised, I believe. I believe now we know that the preached word is the imperishable seed, and by it, our church is directed by God albeit through a fragile and common vessel. We've also learned uh, that when we are taught, there's a need for a response. We're supposed to be a people who are teachable. 
and we hold each other accountable to walk in what we've heard. This is what it means to be genuine and authentic in your walk and obedient. In a like manner, we've learned that the Lord's Supper and baptism are not simply symbolic, but divine in nature, where the Spirit actually moves and transformation actually takes place in God's people. This morning, we'll begin to look at our singing, what we just spent the first part doing. We're going to be looking at song and the role of song in worship. When you think about corporate worship, the time where the church gathers, the first two things that probably pop into your head are singing and preaching, and usually in that order. And sometimes we get into those ruts where, well, it's always, you know, two songs, and then the preach word, and then we sing a few more songs. But um, you normally think of at least those two things. It's what we do. We gather, we sing, and we listen. But why? When did this begin? Have God's people always sung when they gathered together? If not, who started it? And why did they feel led to do so? And why music? Is it not enough to simply speak about what God has done? Must we sing? Um, you don't have to be a musical person for this to matter. And, and I, I mention this because I've heard this before, like, I don't really care about the worship and song part. I'm not a real musical person. Well, you should. You should. It, it's an important thing. That's like saying, I'm not real big on carbohydrates, so I don't like the Lord's Supper. I don't really care. It doesn't bother me. You, we can do whatever. Do it however you want. Or I'm not a swimmer, so the baptism, y'all do it however you want. You, you should care about when we gather and we sing. Because do you, do you remember what Brad read this morning at the beginning of the service, the service in Amos 5, where the Lord's saying, get away from me the noise. It's not song. It's not worship. It's just noise because your hearts aren't right. So when we sing, it's, it is very important that we do care and that our hearts are right. Um, my hope is that the bar will be raised for us in worship and song. That as we learn more about what we do week after week, that we will be informed and thereby freed up to be even more wholehearted uh, in our worship. Worship is not just song. We're talking about the song portion of worship, but worship is a life lived for the glory of God. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So your whole life, your mind, how you live it out, that's worship. And we're talking about the song portion this morning. And the reality is, is that the more wholehearted we are in a life of worship, that will fuel our song when we gather. But if our life is not worship, our song is empty. And so you got to see that before we even start talking about song, is that worship is us responding and living out for the glory of God in all that we do. And this morning, we're going to talk about the song aspect of that. So 1 Chronicles 16, look at verse 7. Then on that day, then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And I want you all to hear the words that are sung in this song. This is a very important song in the history of song's role in worship. And listen to these words. See if you see a theme. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continuously. Continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles. And the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. The first point this morning, which may be obvious, is that worship is all about God. It's all about God. Now, none of us would audibly say, I'm here for me, and this is all about me. I'm here for what, what's in it for me. None of us would audibly say that, audibly. But the truth is that we can have many thoughts that go in that direction, Mark Deaver comments at the center of the life of God's people is God. God is sovereign and God is central. And when we begin to lose sight of God being central and God being the reason we're here and that this is all about God, we can fall into a number of messes. You may have been in the place before where you begin to think that because you don't prefer something that everyone else must feel the same way. You ever, you never done that? Okay. Like when you come in and like maybe the walls are repainted and you're like, this is ugly. I bet everyone thinks it's ugly. Or you hear a song and you're like, that's kind of lame. I bet everyone thinks it's lame. And you, you kind of want to be miserable and have other people miserable with you. Those are the kinds of thoughts that you lead, that 
that you fall into when you begin to lose sight of the fact that it's all about God. You may prefer one band over another. You may prefer one style over another. Everyone has preferences, right? But there's a problem when you find yourself not worshiping as deeply when your tastes are not being appeased. What I mean is it's not an uncommon practice for professing believers to choose a church solely on the basis of the type of worship music that they play during corporate worship. I, I know it's been done. I know that that happens fairly regularly in the lives of those who are professing believers. Well, where do you want to go? Well, I really want a place that has this kind of worship. And that, that's first and foremost. What I'm getting at is that worship and song can become the easiest place to forget that it's all about God. When it should be absolutely central that we are here because of God, and we know what we know because of God, and we sing because of God. And I think that worship and song, because there's so many musical preferences and style preferences, and, and I prefer this and I prefer that, that we can really lose sight of it being about God. And so I want to make sure that we hear David's words here, give thanks to the Lord, recount his deeds, seek him, glory in his praise. It's all about him when we gather. Sometimes you'll have an emotional experience in worship and song, and because it was more emotional for you, you thought that God like, maybe did a better job that time. That's not how it works. It's all about God, and we've got to stay focused on him. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, C.S. Lewis explained this thing called chronological snobbery, which I, I've, I've explained it before in one of our studies, but essentially chronological snobbery says what we're doing right now is the best way that it's ever been done simply because it's what we're doing right now. Like, everybody should be doing what we're doing because it's the best. And you lose sight of what God has shown us in the past. And you lose sight of what he's calling us to in the future. And it's interesting because if we could humorously uh, take a look back at maybe some worship services 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, where we our God is an awesome God. And that's, that's the only song I need, you know. Like, things like that, or there's just one hymn that you like, and, or like, Hair bands that are worship bands, like that was just this theme, you know? Like, what I'm getting at is that we shouldn't let just preferences or fads or, or, or uh, different styles that are popular at different times guide us in corporate worship. We, we should submit to the Lord because it's, it's all about Him. And uh, I really wanted to have like a slideshow of like different worship bands and the songs and just how silly we can be because we think that we've got it all right because we're doing what we're doing right now. Another thing that can happen is that you can very easily lose focus on what God's intentions are and what he aims to accomplish in our times of corporate worship. You can find yourself going through the motions and making caveats according to what's easier or what your preferences are, but God has a purpose and a plan. He doesn't just prefer that we spend our time focused on him. It's not just a preference that he has. He ordains and he commands it according to his purpose for the glory of his name. Consider David here. Here, these words that David chose to, to share. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make knows his deeds among the peoples. David didn't get up and say, I am King David. Let's sing a song that has to do with everything that I've done and what the Lord had happened through me. It wasn't about David. It was about the Lord. And he's worshiping wholeheartedly, choosing his words carefully and appointing them to be sung in the right manner by the right people at the right time. But guess what happened three months before that? He lost sight of what God intended, and a guy died because of it. Turn to First Chronicles 13, just a few pages before. Or the page before. First Chronicles 13. I want to introduce you to a, a guy named Uzzah. Verse 3. Then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. What's happening here is, and we're going to learn more about this in the coming weeks, but the ark is representative of the presence of the Lord. And they're realizing that because they've sort of abandoned and forsaken the ark, that they have not been really seeking the Lord properly. And they're saying, let's get this thing right. Let's bring it back. And they're excited, and they're wanting to worship the Lord wholeheartedly. And in verse 5 it says, So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Labo Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bela, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio, who were driving the cart. And listen to this. And David 
and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. Notice how quick it went from being angry to being afraid. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. So they didn't do it right, and Uzzah dies. Now three months pass, and they decide, let's give it another shot. I think we've got this whole thing figured out. And look at verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 2 through 3. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And then down at verse 12, it says, And he, David, said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring, the ark, bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Do y'all see what happened here? They were trying to be wholehearted in their worship, but they lost sight of the fact that it was all about God. See, what, what God did in Exodus is he originally explained to Moses, this is how you're going to build the ark. And he gave him these dimensions. And he said, it's going to be out of acacia wood or the sacia wood or however you want to say it. And you build it just like this. And then you cover the inside and the outside with gold. And then on the corners, you put these golden rings. And then I want you to make poles out of that same wood. And I want you to cover that in gold. And you put those poles through those rings. And don't let the poles leave the rings. That's how you carry the ark. That's what God said. This is many years before. David should have known this. This is important. But he lost sight of it. And what happens? Uzzah lost his life because of a, a caveat or an exception was made for the sake of efficiency. You hear that? For the sake of efficiency, they made an exception and they changed the rules a little bit. Lost sight of God saying, don't let the poles leave the rings because that's how you carry the ark. Letting the ark be placed on a cart and pulled by oxen would be far more efficient, would it not? But God desired the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. That's an important point. God desired the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. Would it take longer? Yes. But God chose it the way he did to slow them down. It was not about efficiency. It was about worship. His intention was that they humbly, carefully, and wholeheartedly approach him the way that he allowed. So I urge you to take your time and worship wholeheartedly. Don't make exceptions in your worship, kind of like this. For instance, uh, on 35, far south, there's, I don't know the name of the church. All I know is on the outside of their building, all it says is 30-minute worship. 30-minute worship. Uh, that's like pulling the ark, the ark with oxen. It's not a, you're losing sight of the fact that it's about God when that's the first most important thing. God desires the steady hand of a consecrated worshiper. Now turn back to 1 Chronicles 16. I think you're probably already on the page. Verse 7. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Before David, song had not been a part of corporate worship. Song was not an important thing in corporate worship before the time of David. Um, the ark is representative of the presence of God. God ordained that it be made and, that, and God ordained that uh, there be a tabernacle by which his people could gather in his presence. So there's a few tabernacles we need to be familiar with, the Mosaic tabernacle and the Davidic tabernacle. Now in the Mosaic tabernacle, there wasn't singing, there wasn't corporate worship. In the Davidic tabernacle, there was. And in fact, the Davidic tabernacle was finally built by David's son Solomon. It was said in scripture that David had shed too much blood on the earth, so it would be Solomon who finally built it. And we're going to see when it's finished here in a few moments. But in the Mosaic tabernacle, there wasn't worship and song, and in the Davidic tabernacle, there was. So something had to have happened between the two for all of a sudden 
song to be important. And I think if we understand it, song will be more important to us. The Mosaic Tabernacle was largely silent. We know that Moses sang. In fact, one of the earliest recorded psalms in the scripture is from Moses. But that song was not a corporate song that was part of corporate worship. When particular sacrifices were made, it is likely that sins were audibly confessed to the Lord. But there was no singing. So in the Mosaic Tabernacle, what we need to see is the people worshiped the Lord. So there was worship, but there wasn't singing. See, sometimes we blur the lines and we think that sing, the only way we worship is to sing. But for a long time, there was worship with no singing. So that tells me that we can better understand our singing part of worship if we can understand what was going on in the worship of the Mosaic Tabernacle. And what they would bring would be a sacrifice. And so what we understand when we understand song, when we come before the Lord and we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we draw near carefully, fetter our hearts because we're bound to, we're, 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 we have tendencies to, to, to wander away from you. When we do that, what we're doing is we're bringing what's called a sacrifice of praise. We no longer bring the sacrifice of the burnt offering and the grain offering and all those things. We bring now a sacrifice of praise. So the only, the only way to understand song is in light of what a sacrifice is. Now, look at 1 Chronicles 28, 19. This is important because this is where the turn came when song became important. You could make the, you could kind of uh, make an assumption that, well, maybe David was just more of a music guy and he happened to be king and so he said, well, let's sing. That's not what happened. It was ordained by the Lord as we'll see here in, in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 19. David is charging Israel and David is charging Solomon, his son, to get to work and to build what the Lord has told him to build. And he explains, he's, he's shared all these lists of these precious stones. And, and actually, it's seven and a half million. I'm a nerd, and I got my calculator out because I wanted to see what the cubit was and a pound and all that. It's seven and a half million pounds of gold, pounds of gold, went into this tabernacle. And here he's sharing all these details about the, the, the things that are, to your, the supplies you build it with and the way you do it and who's stationed where and this person goes here and this person does this at this time. And he's sharing all these details. And then he shares where those details came from. It's not just that David had a good grip on what was going on. The Lord spoke to him. And in 28, 19, it says this, all this he, God, made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. So any plans that David shared, think of as plans from the Lord. Any details that David includes about the tabernacle and the ark and the worship that takes place there, think about those as things that have been included by the Lord, not just David. And this is where we see that the Lord gives us song as a gift and as a means by which he would predominantly be worshipped from that point on. So uh, an example, every measurement, every office, every responsibility, it's all from the Lord. So First Chronicles 23, 2 through 5, look at that real quick. There's a lot of turning here, but we got to kind of climb into the tabernacle and see what's going on and see who's doing what for us to understand why we sing to the Lord. 23, 2 through 5 says this, David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites the Levites, 30 years old and upward, were numbered, and the total was 38,000 men. 24,000 of these, David said, shall have charge of the work in the house of the Lord. 6,000 shall be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for them. And David organized them in divisions according to the sons of Levi. Now look at verse tw chapter 25, 1 through 3. David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service uh, the sons of Asaph, and He-Man, and Je you can name your kid He-Man because that's there and he's, it's kind of cool. And Jedithan, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. The list of those who did the work and of their duties was of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nethaniah, Asherah, sons of Asaph, under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Of Jedithan, the sons of Jedithan, Galiliah, Zerah, Je I... I the names aren't important, but know that they're names. Know that they're people who are playing a role. Shemaiah, Hashabarah, six, under the direction of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And look down at, at verse seven. The number of them, along with their brothers, who were trained in singing to the Lord, all were skillful, was 288. That's a lot of really good singers. That, that would be different for us, wouldn't it? If we went into that, that setup, it'd be like, oh, they're really over the top here, 288 trained singers. We just need a band. 
You see, like, but this is all about the Lord. This is what the Lord was doing. And in fact, it wasn't enough that they just wanted to sing. They had to be good at it. Um, So there was 288 of these skillful singers. That's a sample of what God ordained in worship. This is a big change. And when you look at the song, which next week we'll look more at the content of the song, it is so innovative in the ways that he uses those words to to be evangelistic, to confess sins, and, and to communicate the glories of God clearly. But hear that this is what God wanted. This is God's plan that he shared with his people about the way that he was to be worshiped. So that's why we have a right to sing. Today we not only get to, but we're supposed to sing. Because through David, God ordained that when his people gathered to worship, the principal means that they would worship him would be through song. And we understand this song in light of sacrifice, and we bring a sacrifice of praise to our Lord. And look what happens when they sing. I said that we'd look at when Solomon finished the temple. Turn over to Second Chronicles 5. Aren't y'all just enjoying Chronicles this morning? You ever done that before? Second Chronicles 5, 13 through 14. This is it. The tabernacle has been built and the ark is being brought in. And it's like, okay, all this order, all these people who've been assigned to do all these things and all these supplies have been used to build it exactly as the Lord showed David. Written out. This is it. And in verse 13, it says this. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Can you imagine being at that worship service? They start to sing and everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. We think we're doing what God is and boom, God shows up. It's so, it's, the cloud is so thick they can't even do what they're supposed to do. They're just kind of in awe. They're bewildered. We're supposed to be in awe of the Lord when we worship him in song. So when we sing to the Lord, when we call on his name, his glory is present. Hear that. When you sing and when you call on the name of the Lord, his glory is present. Why? Because it's a fulfilled promise. Turn to Exodus 20, 24, and then the turning will slow down from here. Exodus 20, 24. I want you to turn here because this is a promise from God, and the children of God should very much cherish the promises of God. And every time you see them fulfilled, you get to rejoice because God is a God who keeps his word always. Exodus 20, 24 says this, and the second part of the verse In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. That's a sweet promise from our God. In every place that I cause my name to be remembered. We don't just muster what we need to remember his name. We need him to even be able to remember him. And when he causes us to remember his name and call out to him, he comes to us and he blesses us. And he's not a means to another blessing. He is the blessing. So when God shows up, you're blessed. Don't wait for him to show up and then say, I need a new this, or I need more of this, or I need that. God's not a means to another blessing. He is the blessing. He shows up and he blesses you with his presence. Exodus 20, 24 is a sweet promise. When I cause you to remember my name, I will show up and I will bless you. God keeps his promises. Our times of corporate worship are all about him. And when he causes us to remember him, he comes to us. He's present and he blesses us. And when we sing, we sing as a blessed people in the presence of the living God. It is not just symbolic, and it is not just factual. This is a fear that I have for the people here at Crosspoint. Sometimes it feels as though there's never a reason for too much excitement. I'm the guy who's led worship for the majority of the last decade. Sometimes it feels as though there's never a reason for too much excitement. What I mean is that we can be very factual in our worship. Yes, the Lord is good. Yes, he is, uh, he is sovereign. He is uh, central in this place, and we shall sing a song to him at this point. We may stand. We probably won't, uh, but he is good, and we sing it in song. Like, it's not just factual. What's happening here? In part, this is my fault because I have a large tendency to focus on the lyric and not the melody and the arrangement. That's the joy of working with other people. 
That's the joy of having ministries in this body and being ministries of this body. And there's some 20 or 30 people involved in our worship ministry. You begin to see things, and God opens your eyes to different things. And what I've realized is that in large part, I'm so focused on the lyric because I've seen so much fault in focusing just on the music and throwing whatever lyric rhymes in there. Um, that I have a tendency not to focus enough on the arrangement and the melody. But you know what God says? God says, use the lyric, use the arrangement, use the melody, use everything that that instrument can do and represent my glory rightly. Try to lift the souls of your people with that. God ordains that we utilize those things to represent his glory. When we are engaged by the living God, our souls should be stirred. Our emotions should be changed and moved. It's not simple facts that we're singing about. It is exaltation. We are calling on the name of the Lord, invoking his presence, and asking him to bless us. And guess what? He does. Knowing this will help us to be more true in our worship. We will stand at the appropriate times and refuse to sit. At other times, we will kneel humbly, while at other times, we should rightly fall on our faces. Here's the deal. It's not just about standing up without being told. It's about being true to who God is as he stirs you in corporate worship. It's about making the right decision when you're worshiping and responding appropriately because of who he is. I'm worried that we can be bound to the pew by misunderstanding. And we can be limited in how our souls are stirred and how our emotions are moved by the greatness of God because we don't want to step out of line. But I'm hoping that this information frees us up to not be bound by those kinds of things. When we are engaged by God, when he is present, we should let him direct us. It should cause us to ask, what is most appropriate right now? And there will even be times when we raise our hands. Oh, when we raise our hands, why? Because we're so desperate to be as close to God as we can possibly be. Or we're so desperate to make sure that his praises are lifted as high as we can possibly muster. We see him doing this with his people throughout scripture with their hands lifted high. They're praising the king. They're worshiping. He's cleaned their hands and they're saying, you cleaned our hands. We have a right to come before you now because of what you've done. Praise you. This is about you. There should be times where we all but rip the roof off of this place because we are so overwhelmed by the presence of God. He's present. The aim is not to turn our corporate worship time into an aerobics class. I want to make that clear. The aim is not that there's any kind of disorder in our times of corporate worship, but a people who engage the living God and are engaged by the living God rejoice greatly. We should rejoice greatly because of God. Sometimes hands will be lifted. Sometimes we will weep. Sometimes we will fall to our faces and beg for him to come and take us home. But most of the time, we will rejoice. If we keep God central in our worship and we understand that he means for song to be used in worship and we understand that he comes to us and he blesses us, then we will be freed up to be as true in our worship as he calls us to be. Turn to 2 Chronicles 6. We were here a minute ago. Solomon is blessing the people. I may have said that wrong. I don't know. Here is where the temple is finished. Solomon is blessing the people. Solomon is praying. It's kind of this inaugural prayer. It's like it's done. This took a while. This took a lot of resources. This took a lot of people. And we're here and we're worshiping the Lord and he's praying. The people have a place to meet with God now and that's a big deal. Look at the realization that Solomon shares as he prays. Look at verses 18 through 20. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Like the whole point of the tabernacle and the ark is that God's going to dwell with man. You're going to have a place to go to be in the presence of God. And here he's praying at the inaugural prayer of the opening of this thing. And he says, will God really dwell with man? It's a sober time. Listen to this. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house. Here I will never leave you or forsake you. The place where you have promised to set your name. What the tabernacle is is a, a house for God's name. Everything that we are, everything that we do, 
Everything that we sing about is God. It's all about God. We're a people who proclaim the name of God in everything we do. We're a people who God causes to remember his name. Think about the privilege that is, that God would ever cause any of us to remember him, to have this, to know what he spoke to David, to know what he spoke to Moses, to know what he spoke to Solomon, to know what he spoke to Hezekiah, when there's a good king and a bad king and a good king. The good king, one of the things that you always see about the good kings is that God caused them to remember his name. Think about the privilege it is to remember the name of the Lord this morning. His name indicates his presence, his purposes, his blessings, his character, his promises, and his glory. This is what we are about, and this is why we sing. To do so is to enjoy his character, to savor him. His presence is of utmost importance to his people. We should care about God being present with us. To glory in his praises, to glory in his presence, is to feast on, appreciate, and savor all that there is to be said about who our God is, what he has done, and what he aims to do. And generally, that's the content of our song. So the question comes up, do we need a particular place to go now to be in the presence of God? Do you have to come here to this sanctuary to be in the presence of God? Do we go somewhere else? Is there more to figure out? This is the really good part because the temple foreshadows Jesus. In 1 Chronicles 17, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but uh, I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles 17, and we see this beautiful promise that the Lord makes to David. And here's what I want you to think about as I read these words. 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14. Anything you ever hear about an ark, about temple, about tabernacle, all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Even when I read this from 1 Chronicles, this was about Jesus. And you'll hear it clearly knowing that. So as I read this, consider the temple foreshadows Jesus. Do we need a place to go? Look at verse 10. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. Well, who's building a house for who? Are the people building a house for the Lord, or is the Lord building a house for the people? Which is it? Well, the Lord just said, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, he's talking to David here, remember, the king, the one who's in charge. I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. Think about Jesus. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. He's talking about someone who's an offspring of David, and it's not Solomon. It's Jesus. This is the best part of the morning here. Turn to uh, to John 1, John chapter 1. In light of that, in light of God promising David, hey, I'm going to send someone to be on the throne, and he's going to be there forever. I'm going to send someone who is going to be your offspring, and he'll be established forever. In fact, I'll be like a father to him, and he'll be like a son. And to Look at John 1 in light of that promise. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's all about Jesus. Look at what Jesus does when he enters this temple that was representative of him. Look at John 2, same page, just a couple columns over. John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons And the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Why did you just run all those people out of the temple? They probably thought of Hezekiah 
Hezekiah was a good king, and he had a notable transformation in the temple where he went in and he was like, he started with the front door, and he fixed the front door, and he opened it up, and he said, get all the wicked stuff out. That's not what this is about. Here Jesus has made a whip of cords, and he's cleared out the temple. And they're saying, what sign do you aim to show us through this? And look what Jesus says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and a lot of supplies and people. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When we worship the Lord in the name of Jesus, you need to clear out whatever the junk is. Whatever's not appropriate to who God is. Whatever's not representative of the character. Don't just leave it at the door and forget about it until worship's over. Bring it in here. Set it at the foot of the cross. Confess your sins and say, Lord, I want all this to be cleared out. This is all about Jesus. And for me to worship you, it's not appropriate to trade anything for you. Don't make it a house of trade. The point is, is there's no longer a mosaic tabernacle or a tent of meeting or a Davidic tabernacle or a Solomonic tabernacle. Now there is Jesus. Jesus is the means by which we come before God. We sing in his name. We pray in his name because we have no other right to come to the Father but by Jesus. Just as the tabernacle existed for people to have a place to go to dwell with God, we have Jesus. And it's only by the rights that we have in Jesus, by the work that Jesus has done, that we can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth like we're called to. That our song can have any consistency in it. That we can sing and it would be remotely pleasing to the Lord. Just as he would smell the sacrifice and it would be pleasing to him, so our songs are pleasing to the Lord because of Jesus. We sing in his name. We have no other right to come before God but by Jesus. These promises point to Christ. While God's people thought that they were building a place for him to dwell, in fact, God was building a place for them. And that place or person is Jesus, the son of David. Do you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem? What did they say? Hosanna, Hosanna to who? The son of David. Let your mind go to the promise in 1 Chronicles 17. It's been about Jesus the whole time. And we get to sing in the name of Jesus. Glory has come to earth. And the promises that God has given, 2, Chronicles, or 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Even the promise that he made to David so long ago, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. Every other promise that God has ever made is fulfilled in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Glory has come to earth. And his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm going to ask the guys who are leading worship to go ahead and come on up as I read this last part. Glory has come to earth, and his name is Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. As you sing, we're going to sing now. As you do so, sing in his name. Glory in his praise. Marvel at his presence. Remember that it's all about God. Savor his character and let him stir your soul. Engage him as truly as you can. And get this. Psalm 22.3 says of God, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. He inhabits the praises of his people is another way to say that. Followers of Christ are the new Israel and Jesus is the son of David, our present king. And he inhabits the praises of his people. So because of Jesus, what we experience when we sing is throne room worship. When you hear the phrase, hopefully we're going to be led into the throne room at this point in time, through worship and song, we're entering the throne room, that's because the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And rather than being contained to this little sanctuary, rather than our praises being contained to this little sanctuary, they make their way to the Holy of Holies. We're engaging God intimately in Christ. The throne room, a place reserved for consecrated kings, has been opened by God through Christ to a bunch of Gentile worms like us. And he not only gives us a voice, and ordains that we sing, but he inhabits our praises. And we are immensely blessed, counted righteous, cleansed completely, that we might be in the presence of the King of Kings because of Jesus. Do we have a great reason to sing? Yes. And God gave us that reason as he ordained through the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are always higher than our ways. And when we understand more about your plan and what you've done in the past and what you aim to do now and what you aim to do in the future, we'll be wholehearted in worship. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. 
I thank you that Jesus takes the place of burnt offerings and Jesus takes the place of this tabernacle and of the ark and all these things because in Christ we have perfect fellowship with you and with each other. This is a room full of people blessed immensely because our God is present. God, that should blow our minds. This is a room full of people who have perfect unity in Christ. And just like the Levites sung and were to be heard in unison, now we can sing and be heard in unison because of what you've done, God. So I pray that we would do so. I pray that we would worship in spirit and truth. I pray that we would always be in awe of you and your ways. And I pray that our songs would reflect a life of worship that we're living for your glory and everything that we do. Lord, we love you. We humble ourselves before you. And I'm, I pray that you would cause us to remember your name, to remember what that means, to remember what you've done and what you're going to do, to remember the blessings, to remember how there has been a made a way for us to enter into a very holy place that was otherwise reserved for those who are consecrated. And now in Christ, we've been made holy and we have been cleaned and we have been blessed and we are ready to worship you, Lord. So I pray that that would happen, and I pray that it would happen uh, wholeheartedly, and I pray that none of our hearts would be far from you. And if our hearts are far from you, Lord, I pray that in song that we would not sing, but that we would stop and we would pray and we would repent and we would ask you to cause us to remember your name, and that as you do, that we would lift praises as high as we can and praise you because you are worthy of far more than we could ever give. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray and we sing praises in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to distribute the elements, and I would ask that you would hold on to them. And we're going to take them together, and we're going to have a blessing for this church for the year 2010 as we do that. So we'll go ahead and distribute the elements. Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In Luke 13, he says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it and will not be able. I fear sometimes we take eternity too lightly. In our context, in the buckle of the Bible belt, eternal salvation in many cases has been reduced to a decision, baptism, and maybe church attendance. Many, many per Many will seek to enter and not be able. Many want to turn it into a formula and a short list of hurdles that have cleared mean eternal salvation. Many, it seems, want salvation but seek the wide, easy way that gravitates to the path of least resistance, looking for blocks to check and hurdles to clear. But the scriptures show a very different picture. The word paints a picture of a radical transformation and a other worldly ethic. A otherworldly ethic that creates a people who are so different from the rest of the world that we actually have a unique aroma that smells like Jesus. That we actually have a unique flavor that tastes like salt. That we actually have a unique image that's bright and light. My prayer for 2010 for Ben McGraw, for the McGraw Row, and for the people of God at Cross Point is that we would be the biblical church 
the biblical church. That he would prevent us from migrating to the hurdles and the to-do list. That he would grow us up instead to maturity. To be a people. That he would continue to develop in us an identity as a people. That our children and our young men and young women, i.e. tomorrow's church, would not see church as just another activity, but would see it as identity. That he would cultivate and sustain in us a desire to be searched for the glory of God. That we would run to accountability. Because unlike Cain, we believe that we are our brother's keeper. And we believe that two are indeed better than one. And that when one falls, another is there to pick them up. It's called the church. That he would find us well taught. And consistently teachable. That he would find us well led. By gentle, patient, approachable shepherds. And he would find us leadable like dependent, responsive sheep. That he would find us bathing in his scandalous otherworldly love that took on flesh and actually loved his enemies and made them his friends through the work of the cross. And that as we bathe in that scandalous love, that we administer and communicate it and demonstrate it to others, to believers, to non believers, and yes, even our enemies. That he would find us well washed and cleansed through baptism with clean consciences fixed on Jesus Christ. That he would find us supping with eager and satisfied hearts on the body and blood of Jesus. Proclaiming his death and resurrection and eagerly awaiting his return. Let's pray. Lord, make us this bride. Make us this shiny, beautiful bride. Prepared for our groom's return. Lord, find us in 2010 striving in the hard, narrow way. Enjoying Christ and each other. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, you are so good, so good. We are so thankful for the truths that we had the opportunity to express back to you this morning. We're so thankful for throats, voices that are hoarse, throats that are sore, ears that are a little achy from proclaiming your greatness. Lord, I'm thankful that we can hear. I'm thankful that we can speak. I'm thankful that we have breath to form words to shape realities that point in your direction of your goodness and your greatness and your might and your majesty and your wonder. I want to pray that you'll find this people neck deep in that in 2010. I recognize, we recognize that's something that you do in us and we beg for it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks.